Pastor Eric is continuing his sermon series in the book of Romans, so I invite you to please uh, pick up your Bible and turn with me to our scripture lesson this morning, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I invite you to please grab one of those red Bibles in front of you in the pew. Once again, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 8 through 12. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I'm, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, my, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I might... I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is the word of the Lord. Like Kevin said, if you weren't here last week, this is week two of the sermon series through Romans that we will be doing for a while. In case you're worried, um, we won't... If you're looking at next week and this week, we won't always go only five verses at a time. Sometimes we'll do less, but um, <laughs> but no. Um, but there is some good... We are in many ways in... The, these first three sermons in many ways form the kind of introduction that Paul gives of himself and of this letter to the Romans and form some of the foundational things that we're going to return to as we work through this sermon. So as we come to God's word, would you pray with me? God and Father... I just pray that, um, that we might continue to learn from this how to, how to just pursue you, how to be the people that you call us to be individually and together as a body. Pray all of these things um, and that you would be with us all, teaching us sinners as we hear them, and be with me a sinner as I preach it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So because I've been alive for the last few years, I have seen the movie Frozen, all right? And because... Because I have kids, I have seen it like 50 times, which means that I've given that movie a lot more thought than a Disney movie with a snowman that sings jazz songs about how much he loves summer probably deserves. But here's something that I have thought a lot about as I have watched that movie. If there's one thing you remember about that movie Frozen, right, even if you, like me, haven't seen it um, dozens of times, it is that song, right? You know the one I'm talking about. Let it go, let it go. Yes, that song has been everywhere since that movie came out. And I both like and hate that song. Um, Like it, A, in the sense that you have to admit you like it because it is such an earworm that everybody knows, at least the chorus of it. And like it because any song that has the line frozen fractals in it, I feel like deserves a little bit of respect as someone who has tried to write music in the past. But also hate it because it's everywhere. And because in the Christmas 2015 season, I was a manager at Target and every end cap in the toy department sang that song to you. And I wanted to take those Elsa dolls and, and there's kids here. So, um, <laughs> But here's the thing about that song, all right? That song, Let It Go. It's actually this fascinating contradiction to me, as I've thought probably too much about it. On the one hand, people love that song, right? Little girls belt it out on the playground, and the words resonate with teenagers off to find themselves, and middle-aged moms, when no one's around, probably hum it to themselves at home. And, um, and it's not just because it's catchy. 
It's also because there's something about that song that just so resonates with the spirit of this age, right? It's about liberation and about coming out and about being your own person, regardless of the consequences. Is there anything more modern American than saying, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did not, no. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist, I was going to say that, but I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. But, but I mean that no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, right? That is just so the spirit of our age, which is fascinating, because the whole rest of the movie Frozen is about how stupid and destructive that song is. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you think about it, right? What are the consequences of Elsa going and letting go the whole kingdom is plunged into eternal winter. Snow monsters roam the mountains. The harbor is frozen, and commerce and trade are ended, and people are starving and freezing in their homes. Her sister almost ends up dying because of these choices she's made. Right? The hero of Frozen is the person who does not let it go, who does not set off to become her own girl, but it's the person who's so connected to family and duty and the good of the kingdom that she risks her life to save it who ultimately sacrifices herself in order to save her brat of an evil sorceress sister from the consequences of her own actions. I know I have strong opinions, but, but here's the point of all of that, all right? Let it go, that song, we love that because we live in an age of absolute individualism, as people who study it would call it, absolute individualism which is that we believe that what I as an individual want to be, how I feel, what I dream about, the things that I want to do, that trumps everything in our world. It trumps family, it trumps duty, it trumps the good of those around us. No right, no wrong, no rules for us. We're free. That's how we want to live life. But that way of life in our world is destructive, just like it is in that movie. It's just not the sort of life that scripture leads us to either. The Bible has no place for that kind of absolute individualism. Now the Bible does treat us as individuals, right? We as individuals have to know God and believe in him, come to faith in him. You're not a Christian. You don't use your parents' faith like you use their, their Netflix account or their car or something. You have to believe in it for yourself. But that individual faith also always has a place in a community in scripture. All of the images of God's people in the Bible are communal. We are a nation. We are a family. We are a bu- the bricks in a building, the pieces of a body. We're connected to each other. And to deny that connection is to deny something crucial about God and the world that he's made. And that is what Paul is kind of modeling for us in this text at the beginning of Romans. As he gives thanks for the Romans' faith, he's kind of painting a picture for them and for us of how the church should function, how it is connected together, how we need to build each other up rather than letting each other go, how we need to be honest. And, no, I'm not going to. But, but here's what I want us to do this morning, okay? I want us to come to this text as people who live in a deeply individualistic world and ask what it teaches us about how our lives together are supposed to look, about how we are called to build each other up and be connected to each other in the church. What does it teach us about that? And I think there's really four answers in this text. Paul gives four answers. He tells us that we in the church are connected and build each other up through our witness, through our prayers, 
through our presence and through our service. Through our witness, our prayers, our presence, and our service. So let's just look at each of those in turn. First, Paul says that we build each other up through our witness. Our witness. So if you look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, by all over the world, Paul obviously doesn't mean it the way some people think of it, right? It doesn't mean that there's tribes in North America talking about the faith of the Romans a thousand years before the Vikings found them. But he means that the churches, all through the kind of world that he lives in, are talking about this, right? He's he's saying the churches in Jerusalem, in North Africa, in Turkey, and the other places that churches have been planted, they're talking about the fact that there are believers in Rome. And they're encouraged by the fact that there's a growing church there. I mean, I think in many ways he's talking about something similar to our own experiences. I think about the testimonies we've heard, maybe over the last, you know, few months, think about some of the missions moments we've had, right? Hearing about churches being planted in India or people in Palestine coming to faith in Jesus, and that's encouraging to us. And it's a reminder that one of the most powerful ways we can build up the body is simply by walking with Christ while being connected with fellow Christians. That simply through the witness of our lives walked with Christ, we're actually building up the body. Here's something I've noticed. One of the problems in our day, I guess I would say, is that we live these very generationally segmented lives. Generationally segmented, by which I mean teenagers hang out with teenagers, and people um, who are elderly hang out with people who are elderly, and people in their 20s and 30s hang out with other young families, and people who are empty nesters hang out with each other almost exclusively. And that's the problem, right? It's not wrong that we hang out with people who are in the same age and stage with us. We're naturally going to form friendships with those people. But it's the kind of exclusivity that really robs us of something. Because there's really power in kind of relationships and connections with people across those lines. I mean, have you ever had that experience? I think about... I think about just for myself, right? There's something really good for my soul in sitting with people in their 70s or 80s or 90s who have been walking with Jesus for like three times as long as I have been on the planet. There's something nourishing to me because I can look at those people and I can have a sense of like, this is what I'm in for. This is what I'm chasing, right? This is somebody that I am aspiring to be. And apparently, although I don't know why, they tell me that it's encouraging for them as well, um, not because I have some great wisdom or insight to offer, I think, but simply because seeing somebody who's young with the kind of zeal and enthusiasm that that brings follow Jesus is encouraging for people on that side of the generational divide as well. And that's just one example, right? The reality is that's not just a generational thing. That kind of encouragement happens for me with all kinds of fellow Christians, right? If I'm struggling to believe, there is something encouraging to me to watching other people walk out their belief. If I'm struggling to obey, it's encouraging to me to watch people seeking and struggling to obey alongside me. I mean, do you ever stop on Sunday morning and just listen to the people singing the hymns and songs that we sing, right? There's something beautiful and nourishing about that. It's good for our souls, the simple witness of our lives as we seek to follow after Jesus, warts and all, that is the beginning of how we build up the church, simply being Christians and being it in connection with each other. So we build up the body through the witness of our lives. Paul's example also shows us that there's another kind of step to it, that we're also connected and built up through our prayers, through our prayers. 
So look at verses 9 and 10 of this um, passage. Paul says, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I constantly remember you at all times. I pray now at last. Paul's making clear that he is praying deeply for the Roman church. It's really striking how strong the language is that Paul uses for his prayers are in almost all of his letters. Just a few examples, right? So Ephesians 1, for example. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians 1, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Or my favorite Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. That is for Paul, that praying for the church seems to be a really central part of how he understands his ministry. And notice, well, you, you probably don't notice, but, but from what's interesting about that list of those things, some of those are churches Paul has relationships with, right? And that would be natural. Thessalonians, Philippians, Ephesians, those are written to churches that Paul planted and where he knows the people. But here in Romans and in Colossians, those are churches that Paul has never actually been to, right? And he's still using that language of constantly praying for them. So it's not just that he has these certain people that he knows and cares about. Paul is praying for the church constantly. Here in Romans, again, he puts it as how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. He's he's praying for them constantly. And look, some Christians can actually get weird about that. Um, They They hear that praying constantly and they kind of make it sound like that means that you're kind of mumbling under your breath to God while you're making breakfast and brushing your teeth and stuff and literally never stopping prayer. And that's not what Paul's saying. It means, like, if I tell a friend, oh man, I've been thinking about you constantly, I don't mean literally every second of every day, right? But I do mean regularly and frequently. I mean that I've been thinking of you regularly which is to say, you know, I mean, kind of in the rhythm of life and frequently, so that rhythm is not like annual, right? That daily you're coming to mind repeatedly. So that's the way that Paul is praying for the church. And one last thing to notice about that. It's not just the kind of unceasing language he uses that stresses it's a big deal. He also thinks that it's just crucial. He says here, God is my witness, right? When he's trying to communicate his prayers, which means that it's really important to him. You don't say, God is my witness, and say, like, if someone asked me what I had for breakfast, right? I don't say, God is my witness, I had oatmeal and eggs, you know? I mean, it's stressing it. Prayer is actually a work that we do to serve the church. Here's how Paul puts it at the end of Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers... By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So prayer is a way that we are striving together with and helping build up the church. So we're connected to each other through prayer. And we all know the application of that, right? (laughs) Which is that we should be praying for each other. And look... That's always, for some reason, that application I know is always weird when we come to it in Scripture because I think that almost all of us feel guilty about prayer. Praying is one of those things 
at least for me, that feels like exercising or not eating junk food, right? That, um, that I always acknowledge that I need to be better about and always feel that kind of low-grade guilt about. And that's in part because it's an, an area where we can all be improving. I mean, I know a few saints who have these like remarkable prayer lives, right? And pray these long, deep prayers multiple times a day where they're covering all of these different needs. And even they, when I talk to them, tell me that they feel like they don't pray enough. So we shouldn't, when we come to that call to pray for the church, simply kind of feel guilty and then bail, which I think is our temptation, right? Instead, what I'd encourage you to do, if that's something that you feel guilt about, simply try to grow in it a little bit. Let me give you one particular way maybe this morning. Paul's talking especially about praying for the church, praying for each other, which is something that we all know we should do. So try something like this, right? At whatever time it is, you know, I mean, in the morning or the evening that you try to pray, just, just add this, right? Maybe during the week I made a little. So like on Sunday, right, just pray for Kish and its leaders. We could definitely use it. And on Monday, you know, lift up maybe the prayer requests that we had from Kish this Sunday. On Tuesday, be praying for other people here at this church, right? And so then maybe Wednesday, start moving out and pray for one of the other churches in our community, whether that's here in Stillman or in Byron or a church in Rockford that you're connected with. And Thursday, pray for our denomination, maybe, and the churches in it across the country. And then the broader church in America on Friday. And then by Saturday, be praying for the church somewhere else in the world. All right, this is not a rule that you have to follow, okay? I'm not putting that up there because this is a thus says the Lord. But starting with something like that, a simple plan to add a little bit um, of, you know, to grow a little bit in that area of prayer is really the place to start if you feel like you need to grow in prayer, not sort of feeling like you have to get it all at once. And if you're there or past that in terms of how you're praying for the church, then just use something like that list as a way to think about an area you can be stronger Maybe you can pray more locally or more globally or more for another church in town. The goal in all of that, right, is simply to recognize that prayer is good and important for building up the church. So don't let guilt paralyze you, but do something concrete just to grow a little bit. And do that because the more that you do, the more we're actually made into the community we should be. All of this is a call not just because prayer is some box we need to check, but because as you pray for the church, we are actually knit up together into it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about prayer in his classic Life Together. He says, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members one for another. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. So we build up the church through our witness and through our prayers. And then another way, Paul gives a third way, which is that we live as part of this connected body through our presence. Through our presence. So if you look at the end of verse 10, Paul's talking about prayer, and in many of his letters, Paul lists all these specific prayer requests that he has for the churches. But in Romans, he just gives one request. Do you see what it is? It's, I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. Paul's desire, the thing he's praying the most for, is that he might be able to come and be with the church in Rome. 
And what's striking is that his desire doesn't come from some problem in Rome that he needs to address, all right? Yes, Paul wants to use this as a staging ground to do missions in Spain, and yes, it's probably good for the church to receive a visit from an apostle, but the church in Rome, on the whole, seems to be doing okay. So it's not that Paul wants to come because he specifically needs to fix some problem. I mean, if you think about, like, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, all right, have you, I don't know if you've spent time with First and Second Corinthians, but the church in Corinth is a total mess, right? And there, Paul talks about his coming sort of the way, like, the sheriff in a Western talks about coming to town, right? That he's going to come and clean house. Actually, let me just, if you haven't ever thought about that, we have this really romantic idea that the church in the Bible is somehow like this great upstanding place and that, you know, all of the problems are something that came later. So just note, like 1 Corinthians, right, starts like chapter 1, Paul's like, I'm writing to you because you've got all these divisions and you hate each other and won't speak to each other and you need to deal with that. And chapter 2, oh, and you're abandoning the gospel because you don't think that it's, it's very, it's, you think it's foolish. And then chapter 3, there's more stuff about divisions. And chapter 4, you're all about cool celebrity pastors instead of Jesus. And then in 5, you need to excommunicate the guy who married his mom instead of bragging about how enlightened you are for accepting him. And chapter 6, also stop suing each other and stop visiting prostitutes. And there's 10 more chapters like that of that letter, right? so, So the church in Corinth is a mess, which has nothing to do with the church in Rome, but it's just worth bearing in mind because I feel like that resonates with the world that we live in, right? I mean, there was no time that we don't have the struggles with sin and brokenness that we do today in the church. Like we said, that's not the situation in Rome. Not that they don't have issues. It seems like near the end of the letter, there's a few things that Paul addresses. But that compared to a church like Corinth, they're doing pretty well. And unlike Corinth, where Paul uses that idea of his coming as a threat, here he simply wants to be present with them. He wants to come because he wants to be with the believers in Rome. He wants to meet them and spend time with them and break bread with them and just be physically there. Here's how he puts it near the end of Romans. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. One of the striking things about the early church was simply that they spent a ton of time together. Have you ever noticed that in reading it? This is from Acts 2, all right? Um, I, I, I skipped a few parts to highlight kind of this theme in it. But from 42 through 47, here's what it says. It says, They, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The church was deeply united in that world. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They were together and had all things in common. Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they were together. We talked about that idea of absolute individualism as we started out this morning, right? And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but one of the things that's both a big symptom and a big cause of that individualism is just the way that we structure our lives, We've got these big houses with big yards and big TVs that we can watch when we don't have things to do and big cars that we kind of like close ourselves off from the world in and everything in many ways kind of creates this bubble of space around us where other people don't intrude. 
And it didn't always used to be that way. And I don't mean back in like Laura Ingalls Wilder Little House on the Prairie days. I mean, many of you remember, right, when in the evening, you, what you did is you went and sat out on your porch and talked with your neighbors while you watched your kids play in the yard. You lived in a community and were connected to it. And that just isn't the structure of our lives anymore. And I'm not really one to pine after the good old days, right? That's usually not very productive. But I do think that... Um, that that should be a reminder to us that maybe that's something we have to be mindful of trying to start to push against if we're going to live as the community of faith. One of the central ways the church has worked historically is by believers sharing life together, by being present with each other regularly, by having their lives rest in community rather than kind of living in isolation and just having like an hour or two a week that they kind of like stepped out into the church. And I'm not going to make some new rule about that, and I'm not telling you that it's wrong to sit at home and watch TV some nights, because I certainly am wrong if that's the case. But, but here's one practical way to kind of try to live into that more, and that's simply to let your lives overlap with fellow Christians. Let your lives overlap with fellow Christians. I think one of the reasons we struggle to find time to be with each other is because we think of being with each other as sort of an event that you have to plan for. It's something that you have to find free time to do, and that is in short supply. But it doesn't. That picture in Acts is that the believers share all things in common. So, for instance, you know what we all have to do, right, is eat meals um, every day. And one of the main times the early church seemed to find fellowship was around the table. There's this unspoken idea that many of us have that mealtimes shouldn't be social, or that when they are, they have to be these sort of special entertaining events. But why? (laughs) I mean, sure, your kids might be sticking carrots up their nose and pouring applesauce on the floor, and sure, your house is going to be messy and the kitchen's going to be messy, but that's just real life, and that's the thing that we're trying to share, right? So just... Pick a night some week and just, like, have dinner with people. Not as an event, just have them come over and eat freezer pizza if you need to, right? And share in the prep and don't pick up beforehand and embrace the chaos, but just be together and let your lives overlap in that way. Because as you do that, you're actually being present with each other as real people in a way that starts to knit you together in community. And you can do that in other ways, too. I mean, you need to go to the grocery store? Just call somebody up and ask them to come you know, go to the grocery store at the same time as you. You got to tinker with your car, you know, have, call, call your friend and have him just sit there in the chair and talk to you while you tinker, right? Just, we have to reject, if we want to be present with each other, this idea that our relationships are only events. Instead, we have to be willing to kind of push back against the way we structure our lives. Just a little bit. Again, not all the time, but just a little bit, and try to let them bump up against and overlap with each other's. All right. So we're almost done. Paul challenges our individualism by showing us that we're connected and build each other up through our witness and through our prayers and through our presence. And there's just one more to go, which is that we're also connected through our service. Through our service. I love verses 11 and 12. Um, In verse 11, Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. So he's talking about, you know, he's an apostle. He wants to come visit Rome to kind of encourage them and build them up, which is great because it's selfless. But then there's this really human moment in verse 12 because it's almost like he realizes that he's giving the wrong impression because his desire is to bless the church in Rome, but it's not like it's a one-sided deal. So then he says in verse 12, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
which I love because Paul feels this need to, un- to kind of acknowledge that as much as he's this apostle who's coming to apostle these people in Rome, he's also a fellow Christian, and they're going to be encouraging and building him up just as much as he encourages and serves them. That's Paul's ultimate idea of the body, that we're joined together by kind of just mutually serving and giving to each other. It's That it's not like we're trees, right, in proximity to each other in a forest, but it's that we are all branches of one tree, and that life and nutrients are somehow flowing in between us to help us grow. That we're to serve one another. One of the greatest problems with our individualism is not just that it isolates us, it's that it actually warps our view of what people are for. In the individualist world, We only have relationships with people insofar as they serve us. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, we start to think of them in terms of utility, of how helpful they are. And when they're not helpful anymore, we're encouraged to ditch them, to get some me time, to focus on my own stuff right now. You know, you don't, you don't need that, those negative vibes, right? Girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And that can shape how we think about the church, too. We are trained in America to think about the church the way you think about a shirt that you're going to buy, right? How does it fit? And how does it look on me? And um, how, how will it fit in with the rest of my life? What style is it? For Christianity, those are the wrong questions, both about people and about the church. The question isn't, what am I getting out of this person? Or what am I getting out of this church at the base of Christianity? It's how can I serve this person or what can I give to this piece of the body? Now look, that doesn't mean that it's not wrong to have some me time, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't kind of boundaries you have to set on your life. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place where you might leave a church. There are things a church is supposed to be doing, and if it's not preaching the Bible and proclaiming Jesus and him crucified, then you probably shouldn't stick around just because. But it should be a reminder to all of us that our calling is to look at the world in terms of how we can serve it first rather than in terms of how it serves us. And what's interesting to me is that I think as you do that, you actually find yourself being blessed. I mean, here's something I've noticed in marriage, right? You know when I feel the least connected to my wife and you know when I'm kind of like, Marriage is doing the least for me when I am kind of like doing the least for it, right? When I just kind of come home and I'm tired and I zone out and I go watch TV and, you know, kind of let the kids crawl all over and, you know, I mean, and just I'm kind of like spaced, I actually feel kind of distant and disconnected from Elizabeth. But when I kind of like say, you know, stop that and start, you know, start pouring myself out, right? Start trying to do things for her and, you know, make dinner and watch the kids so she can, you know, rest and, and, and try to serve her and pour myself out for her. I actually feel closer to her and I actually feel more love for her and I actually feel more blessed in our marriage. And the same is true of the rest of our lives. And it's true of our lives in the church. One of the things I've noticed, I grew up around the church, right? And what's striking to me is that the people who seem to be the most blessed and get the most out of any given church are often the people who are also the ones who are investing themselves the most in it. Have you ever noticed that? That the people who are involved in the body and connected with other people and seeking to serve in different ways are often the people who feel kind of encouraged and built up and, you know, and grateful for this place. And the people who are just kind of showing up and you know, checking their box and then moving on are often the people who feel like they're getting the least out of it. Not always, but often. 
And I say all of that, and I want to give a caution, actually, all right? Because I feel like that's the kind of point or application of a sermon that I actually wrestle with making, because I know that there are some people here who don't need it, and they're the people who are going to most take it to heart, all right? So, um, so there's another side of this truth, which is that there also needs to be a place for rest and for boundaries and letting other people carry your burdens, right? And I feel like my fear always in calling, in, in calling people to pour themselves out for the church is that the people who are doing that are going to hear that as a call to pour themselves out even more, and that's not what I mean at all. But I know that there are a lot of us who aren't very connected there, and that's who I really think can benefit from reflecting on that call. To think about Paul's words and to think about how we can serve and pour ourselves out for this body. And if that's you, here's my invitation, all right? I'm not telling you to completely upend your life. But I'm just asking you, maybe put that idea to the test, right? Find some area you can serve that seems like a good fit for you, whether it's some formal ministry or something, or whether it's just relationally, find somebody that you can connect with and try to befriend in the church. Think about it, find a place to serve, and start doing it, right? That one thing. And stick with it for like six months, because the reality is that when you start anything new, it's super awkward and hard and you're bad at it, right? But, But stick with it for like six months and just see whether there aren't blessings there that you never would have imagined before you started. More blessings than you would have guessed. So that's Paul's picture of the church, all right? We're this connected body, building each other up through our witness and our prayers, our presence and our service. And that is a picture of the church that we need to constantly try to remind ourselves of because we live in this individualistic age. Or maybe think about it this way, all right? Instead of let it go, instead of frozen, let me suggest another movie that I often find myself thinking about when I think about this call to live as a community. It's a Wonderful Life, right? You guys have, some of you, a lot of you probably saw it, you know, in the last month, right? Over Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies. And here's what's interesting about that movie. George Bailey, the main character, he is like the opposite of the individualism that we're told to have in the world, right? I mean, so he injures himself trying to save his brother from the ice, and then he takes this beating to keep his terrible boss, who's terrible from making a mistake, right, and, you know, and hurting somebody. And then he postpones college, even though he wants to get out of this town um, to help out. And then he's about to go to college, and his dad dies, and so he gives up his dreams to stay and take over the family business. And then he and his wife are about to go on their honeymoon, and there's a run on the bank, and they take all their money and give it to the bank instead. And he gives up this great job offer with Potter. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna overview the, the, the whole movie, all right? But, but his whole life is structured around essentially choosing to serve and be for the community rather than for himself, which I love because it's countercultural, but I also love because that movie shows just how beautiful it is, right? I mean, that, that scene at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, and I literally cry sometimes when I, when I see it, right? But we're, we're, we're like a hundred different characters that popped up in this movie are all kind of like crowding into this living room and pouring out their money to try to help George Bailey when he's now in trouble, right? That is exactly what the church is supposed to be like. When you see that community, that's something beautiful, and George could not have had that if he had simply chosen to live life for himself. That if he had, it, I, I, it's just, that's what the choice comes down to, right? Do you want to live in that castle of ice where you can be free? Or do you want to pour yourself out for community and find that kind of room full of laughter and warmth and joy and the people singing? Because look around you, friends. This is what that is supposed to be. This is what that is, that kind of community. 
And as we seek to serve Jesus and live for, the, for his people and connect our lives to each other, that's more and more what we get to become. So let's pray and serve and live together as that kind of people. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you for all of these brothers and sisters that you've given, um, given Elizabeth and I here at Kish as we've gotten to know them. I thank you for the ways that so many of them are serving and pouring themselves out for you. And I pray that more and more we might do that as we more and more grow to be the image of Christ to the world. Pray all these things in his name.